in a world full of complex challenges. We need more open-hearted opportunities to express ourselves. In a world full of heated debate, we need more open-minded opportunities to listen to each other. In a world full of fear and anxiety, we need more chances to chill and turn toward one another. Join us as we host conversations with educators, artists, activists, community members, and youth to surface the intergenerational wisdom we need to understand, adapt to, and solve the urgent issues facing humanity. Welcome back to the second series of the Chill Podcast. This is our fourth episode in this series, and we are talking about how climate change is changing classrooms. Today, we're going to let Kelly take the lead in introducing our topic. She's going to introduce how Native American wisdom and leadership in Utah is amplifying indigenous perspectives on the environment and the planet, and how we are using professional development through the BYU Arts Partnership at Brigham Young University to amplify these ideas and share them with teachers. We have a lot to unpack. And so before Callie shares, let's do our check-ins. Louise, would you mind starting? The thing that is really being so wonderful for me right now is that I'm taking a course with Margaret Wheatley. Did I tell you guys that? Yeah. No, I'm so excited. um, You wanted to do that for so long, Louise. I'm thrilled. Yeah, it's great. So it's four sessions and they are three and a half hours each. And last Sunday was the second session. And the course is called The Alchemy of Space. And it's about being present and aware and mindful of our internal space. And then it's about the space that we create with each other, like this space here, you know, the four of us and the space that we're creating for others to participate in. And then it's about space. And so she began the course with showing us images from the James Webb telescope. And then there are all these amazing resources in between. So I'm listening to lectures on things like the conscious universe and quantum physics. And it's really, really great. And it's making me sort of regretful that like, I haven't spent my whole life studying history and science is kind of like this regret I'm having. But I'm super excited about what I am reading these days. And, you know, and just this perspective is so amazing. And I I guess that, you know, this idea that it is an intelligent universe, but it's also a dispassionate universe, you know, that it it doesn't really care. <laughs> it's like a, a disinterested universe. So the idea that as human beings on this planet, it's our job and it'll be great if we do what we need to do to live in harmony and kinship and alliance with nature and we thrive and that'll be wonderful. But if we don't, that's just, it's still an intelligent universe. <laughs> and so if that perspective is being helpful for me somehow, I'm loving it. And it's such a gift to, you know, be with Margaret Wheatley. So that's my check-in. It's very cold here in New England. It's going down to negative nine tonight, negative 11 tomorrow. And that's, and really windy. So, you know, very cold wind chill. That's very unusual for this area of the country. 
So it's probably the polar vortex, which I think more people are beginning to understand. So, you know, the polar vortex is these winds that roll around counterclockwise in the Arctic. And uh, since the ice is melted, they are unstable. And so, you know, it's just these big loops of Arctic air are coming down into the Northern Hemisphere and going across. And then once the cold part goes across, then a warm part goes across. And so it'll be these really frigid and then really warm. And it's like, yep, that's part of global warming because the ice is melting. So it's, you know, it's definitely a pull inside. And I've been having a big case of the I don't want is, you know, because I kind of want to just stay inside and read and whatever. But as far as the mural goes, that's been dominating me again, once I finally got out of my house. And um, the installer, the tile installer wanted way more money than I have. I thought it was 16,000, but it turned out to be 11,400, but it's still more money. I've got about 4,000. So the mass art people are saying that they can probably find students or recent alums or somebody who can do it on the cheap. But because we're moving it inside, I've now got a classroom at Umana, an empty classroom, and we've pushed all the tables together. And the tables are all different sizes and different heights, but we're still trying to lay out this huge panel E, which has got these 300 tiles, you know, A through W and one through 15 and stepped. And it's been very complicated, but it took us two days to get the puzzle pieces to fit together. And now that we have, we know which tiles need to be redone and we know how big things are. And I've been remeasuring spaces inside and trying to reimagine where to put it. And it's a very complicated thing because I have to think aesthetically about, you know, oh, here are the planners doing the community-based planning for nature-based solutions over here. And then this is the marsh and the deep water with the barriers to, and then this is the boardwalk and this is the soccer field. And, you know, it's like, okay, so how can I break this up so it'll fit on the panels that we have inside and, you know, which ones will be seen first and which, you know, anyway, it's very complicated because I'm having to combine the visual appearance and the meaning and the numbers. And it's like, whoa, that's a lot of parts of the brain to be functioning. And the thing that it, makes me realize, especially since I'm presenting this at the National Art Education Association in San Antonio in April, is that when I tell this story, it's really a story about risk-taking and moving into something that is unsteady and uncertain and ambiguous, and then responding. And it's like you never know how it's going to turn out. So you have to put in all this effort and then you have to say, no, that's not working. And I'm going to have to do this. And, and it's really, it's an emotional roller coaster and it's a skills-based roller coaster and it's an interpersonal-based roller coaster. And it's just really reminding me that the creative process is a real challenge. And I think, you know, as I'm thinking about climate change and, you know, big problems, it's like people are going to have to face these things as creative challenges. And I don't know that we know how to live through creative challenges very well. So it makes me think that what we're doing is really important because people need to think about the reality of constantly troubleshooting and keeping yourself buoyed up 
so that you don't fall into despair anyway. So that's kind of what I've been thinking about. So I want to speak to my creative process too, Lois, although we've all mentioned the weather and I don't think weather is just small talk around here. So I'll say, you know, Salt Lake, we've been really cold. When it gets really cold, we get an inversion and really polluted air that just sits in our city and in our valley. And it's terrible to breathe and gross. And you can't see the, the large vistas that you normally can see through the Salt Lake Valley. Sometimes you can't even see the mountains, but uh, we'll get more snowstorms, which means the temperature will rise this coming Monday. And, and then we just kind of go through this cycle of like clearing the air with beautiful snowstorms, warmer air, and then it gets cold and it just, the inversion sits. Fun fact, when I was in fifth or sixth grade, Bill Nye, the science guy, came and filmed a special episode to go along with the 2002 Olympics here in Salt Lake City. And I got to be the child doing the inversion experiment in a little aquarium that shows how our like mountains and our watershed influence and create this phenomenon. And we got to have chili with him and eat dinner at Deer Valley. And so that was like my hands-on experience learning about the atmosphere and our inversions here in the valley. And as a child with asthma, it was very applicable. I'm like, this is why my asthma is so bad. But I love a- it that the chili played such an important role. Oh, yeah. I have to remember to serve yeah, these guys chili. Yeah, we ate chili. Anyway, my creative process recently is developing the prospectus for my master's thesis. And I want to study how educators who design instruction for adults experience somatic awareness and how that might potentially or not affect their work as a practitioner. And so I started looking at doing this ethnographic study, but as I got into like what I really want to ask and learn about and collect, I'm finding it's more of a phenomenological study and it's more about the lived experience or embodied experience of my participants, but I have no experience with phenomenology and it's so philosophical on what it means to be a human and what it means to experience and to be aware of your own or others cognition and perception and it makes this huge difference between explaining things and understanding things and interpreting things and it just is this completely different way of thinking and being to be a phenomenological researcher. And I am feeling what a good master's program does, which is it changes you. And so I'm grappling with that. I'm grappling with how my own perspective on what it means to be human is changing. I'm leaning into the empowerment that I feel and also mourning the fact that I'm choosing yet again, another field that is hard to describe and hard to advocate and hard to get other people on board. I mean, I'm a dancer. A lot of people do not feel comfortable in that space. It is a smaller community compared to other art forms. I am an educator. (laughs) Some people don't understand why I would dedicate my life's career to a profession that does not economically return what other careers do. And now I'm choosing a form of research that does not win the big bucks or the big grants or the big communities. It's like, do I really want friends? I just keep picking things that are so hard 
to convince anyone is valuable. And don't forget math. And I'm a math teacher. I think that I like it though. I think that's the point. I think as much as I resist it, it's like, this is where Heather goes. This is part of being me. And I had a a thought partner recently reflect back to me. She's like, you just really like to pursue knowing what is unknown. (laughs) And I think, okay, but I think we all do. I think that is a part of, like, if you're a curious human being, you want to know something that is unknown because at least it's unknown to you. But truly in like a very dramatic way, I want to know what is unknown. <laughs> like, yeah. I am grappling with the fact that I'm happily choosing a hard path again. When I am very pragmatic and diplomatic and strategic. And when I choose to work within a system, I have been very blessed and I have benefited from that. So maybe I keep a good balance, but right now I'm really leaning into the existential, phenomenological, hermeneutic, ontological, philosophical, all the things. And I don't even know what those words mean, but I'm there. (laughs) So that's my (laughs) check-in. Oh, Heather, you make me laugh. You are one of the most pragmatic people around it, and you've been very successful in your field. So it's fun to see you uh, stretching and reaching out and finding new things. I am coming, joining everyone today from Portland, where I am visiting my grandchildren. And I witnessed, am experiencing a miracle meeting my new granddaughter for the first time and holding her and just the joy of new life and the joy of watching my son and his wife do this process of making a family. It's just beautiful. The miracle that I had never conceived of before, speaking of um, phenomenological study of human beings, is my grandson since that his little sister was born and he's now 21, 22 months old, they're quite close. And in the last two months, since I saw him in November for the holidays, his language has just boomed and he has this new little sister and his language is booming and all these stories happening. And he is telling stories about things that happened to him before he had language to explain them. They were outside on the, the sidewalk where when he was only about eight months old because he could stand and he couldn't walk, but a bee stung him on the thumb and he's standing out there and he's remembering and he can now tell his dad, he points to his thumb, bee, owie, owie. And he's pointing to his thumb and they're like, we've never talked about this. We've never shared this experience, but he is now putting words to pre-verbal experiences. He told them that he was getting dressed one day and he starts rubbing his thigh and owie, owie, doctor and he it tells them the song that the doctor sang when he gave him his vaccination in his thigh when he was only one i had no idea that a child could remember preverbal experiences let alone put words to those experiences once the language was there to share it's it's just blowing me away watching this child that's was something i've never experienced that maybe i'll have to do phenomenological research about to, to understand I am really excited about our topic today. And as I realized that, you know, in our culture, talk about the weather is considered small talk and unimportant. And yet it's so much a part of our lives. And, you know, Heather mentions the air in Utah and 
and, and the cold that we're all experiencing, the, the weather is, is relevant. It describes how we're living and what we're doing in it, a huge part of our environment. And Louise, you and I connected originally around Margaret Wheatley's work. And I went to a conference just to see her and meet her because you inspired me about her work. So I want our listeners to know about the book called Turning Towards One Another, that that is the solution that Margaret Wheatley puts out into the world for these large problems, that the institutions aren't going to save us. We have to save ourselves. And what we do is create an island, turn towards one another, support each other, and live in community together. And with some of these big challenges that we are facing with global warming, I think that Margaret Wheatley's right. And we do have to turn towards one another. And that's part of why the four of us have started in these conversations. And when we see the work of each of us in this program, in next time, in our next episode, we will hear more about Lois's mural. And I'm so excited, Lois, for you to present that in the next episode of our series. And to present some of the work that I've been involved in and what I've been working on in the BYU Arts Partnership, I think it's really relevant to all of these, these conversations. We shared in a previous episode about a teacher, Heather and I talked to in um, Louisiana and her descriptions of surviving the 2016 floods. And I was so struck that she described she never addressed the floods with the kids in the curriculum. She had to go back and teach science and the schooling was so institutionalized with such thick walls that the curricular standards took precedence over the life experience that happened in the weather. And maybe weather isn't small talk. Maybe it needs to become part of our central to our conversations because it is central to our lives. So I've been really reflecting on this split that our lives are on one track and schooling is on another track. And we all know the value of integration. And I think one of the things we may need to do is integrate our schooling with our lives. And one place that that's really happened for me in the BYU Arts Partnership is in our Native American Curriculum Initiative. We started in 2017 trying to improve our curriculum and take out things that were culturally insensitive or not elevating or stereotypical of diversity. And I have learned so much during this process. So one of our culminating events was last summer. We had our Arts Express Summer Conference focused around our Native American curriculum. We brought in all Native keynote speakers, all Native teaching artists, and many presentations on Indigenous pedagogy and Native American content. Our initiative begins with the question, we went to the eight sovereign nations in Utah and asked them, what do you want the children of Utah to know about your tribe? And resoundingly, all of the tribes said that we are still here because they feel so invisible and they still have children ask them, well, you can't be an Indian. You don't live in a teepee. And they, they really want to be uh, present and acknowledged. And then secondarily, each tribe had different stories that they wanted told about their tribes. So we had lesson plans at this conference that we've created in collaboration with the tribes. And those lesson plans actually have the tribal seal of approval on them that we collaborated with people from their education department and other knowledge keepers in their communities who we co-created these lessons and, and there are more happening. And working with the sovereign nations is all about that relationship and honoring the time frame for these lesson plans to authentically occur. 
the largest nation, it's taken us the longest time to get the memorandum of understanding signed so we can publish them. And yet we started working with them near the beginning. Each tribe moves at their own pace and based on you know the speed of trust is what we, we are dealing with. One of the common threads in these lesson plans is that Native Americans have a kinship with the earth. They see everything as connected. And this kinship worldview that says what happens to the trees happens to us and how we respect the animals and how we live in harmony, we're all connected. And we're connected to the weather. And there's a a reason and purpose in that web of life. And last summer when we were at the conference and I watched, we had native artists sitting in the lobby making their art forms so people could watch their art forms unfold. We had each Native artist that got up tell their story of their life, and they talked about the times when people thought they were Mexican and what it took for them to own their own Native American heritage. And as they shared their stories, we all became more aware and sensitive and human together. And everyone's stories emerged as relevant and powerful, and we became one. And a new person at the conference, a professor from another university came up to me and said, I've never experienced anything like this. You've created a community here at a two-day conference. One of our keynote speakers was injured on her way traveling to the conference and was un- unable to make it. So our local Utah native artist covered her keynote address. And we had multiple artists come in and perform and speak and talk. And it was beautiful. And together, the whole conference, suddenly these songs we were singing, the dances we were witnessing and participating in were for healing. And we had a person who wasn't able to join us that we were all praying for. And it created a spirit and unity that was transformative for me. And shortly after after the conference, I went down to Capitol Reef National Park, an area near there called Escalante. And I spent days in the desert with other teachers learning about how to bring the environment to children. And one scientist named Ben Abbott, a professor at BYU of ecosystem ecology, took us out into the wilderness, and we were looking at the artifacts from indigenous people hundreds of years ago and before, and the plant life and the animal life and survival. Everything pointed to how people survive. Going into the desert with this environmental scientist who studies global issues and permafrost and how the world operates He had such hope for this planet, and he helped me fall in love with the planet again. And so my big takeaway was my teachers can't teach these Native American lesson plans until they understand sustainable living and fall in love with the planet. And we go back to indigenous curriculums about survival and what makes the world work and what makes us function as society and as people, because the world is going to survive, but it may not always be habitable for people. And what are we going to do about that? How do we help children fall in love with nature and the outside as part of schooling? So this big split between what's happening in schools and what's happening in life, suddenly I realized we need curriculum that bridges that gap so that when we're experiencing these events, teachers can include it in the curriculum and teach about them and connect the science and make it more relevant for kids. So I thought of some of our teachers who are doing that. In Southern Utah, we have Bruce Huckle, who's a visual art teacher. He does a field trip with the kids, a busloads of kids 
every year goes into the desert to paint and they do plein air painting in the desert. And this last Christmas, his students' Christmas ornaments were on the Utah tree on the Washington DC mall. And they put their pictures on their ornaments about the place we live. And the, you know, then one of those ornaments is chosen to be on the national tree. And these children learn to love their environment because they live in one of the most beautiful places in the world in the Southern Utah desert. And as they paint that every year, that ritual, he takes people in the community and the bus drivers and they all go paint plein air. We have Rios Pacheco, who's a Native American teaching artist who takes students to the site of the Bear River Massacre to show the children where these things happened and how the story unfolded right there in the geography and helps the children understand how those events in our history over 100 years ago impact us today and the people who are the descendants of the Northwestern Band of Shoshone who were the victims of that massacre. The coordinator of our Native American Curriculum Initiative, Brenda Beall, and a, a teacher named Chris Roberts, they created an interpretive trail in one of our canyons where their class labeled the plants and the trees and nature. And now years later, you can still take children up that canyon. And here's you know Lois doing her mural, helping the kids understand the seawater rising. There's all these wonderful examples. So the question I'm throwing out to everybody today is, how can we help students in our schools develop a relationship with the earth so they can begin to understand about global warming and what we can do? You know what I love about this, Callie? I mean, I love this description of what teachers are doing, how they're taking children out into nature, how they're using the arts to help them look, see, express, connect. But what really strikes me about what you're sharing is what the native tribes said was necessary first. I am present, I am here, I have a story. And I think that's the missing piece in school. That's where we need to start. We get so focused on the curriculum and the curriculum will emerge, right? I am here. I have a story, every single child. And then we are here and we have a story together. We are in this place and this place has weather and this place has history. And how do we, you know, so I think one of the practices that Margaret Wheatley is giving us, she says, oh, the most important thing we can do right now is to be present. And that if we are present, there is the opportunity for potential to manifest. But when we are not present, the opportunity for potential and possibilities to manifest actually collapses because we're not present. And so that's where I think that the real wisdom comes. And then the other thing that she reminds us is that we all were indigenous people. I mean, we all come from an indigenous land-based nature connected history that we need to reconnect with. Yeah, that reminds perfect. me, Louise, of the video that Mark Borschelt sent us about four arrows. And Four Arrows, this amazing 76-year-old Native American 
thinker who's now learning to surf down on the southern coast of California. And I loved anyway, he's a really interesting man. And he was talking, somebody asked him about, you know, is he optimistic? And he said he is optimistic, but that he's not convinced that we'll succeed in our efforts to overcome, you know, the challenges of the climate. And he says, but I say I'm optimistic because I think optimism is about living in the present as a human being needs to live. And he talks about how, you know, we think of, many of us think of normal as like the past three or 7,000 years when, you know, the kind of culture that has taken place mostly in the Northern Hemisphere, but for most of the time that human beings have been on the planet, they've been living in this, you know, what Kelly was talking about, this collaborative, connected uh, sense of co-generation of people and life. It's about relationship. So basically, he's saying, I'm optimistic because I don't think about outcomes. I think about sort of like what Gandalf said in the Lord of the Rings, you know, it's like, you don't choose the times you live in, you only choose how you respond to them. And I do think it's fascinating to look at the lineage of this Native American thinking, which has been so diminished in our contemporary consciousness to the point of it almost being non-existent, or if it does exist, it's like magical thinking and silly and dreamlike and, you know, new age, whatever. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, this is human thinking. And, you know, getting back to it, I keep thinking of Joanna Macy saying that this is the third turning with agriculture being the first and the industrial revolution being the second, and then this being the third, and that if human beings get this one figured out, you know, it's going to be a real change in human consciousness. I love that focus on relationships and this Native American curriculum initiative that we have at the BYU Arts Partnership developed from relationships. And Kelly, you you set us up by offering your personal perspective and tension between here's school life and then here's like lived life, like this disparity between the tracks that we live. There's schooling and learning and then there's living your life over here. And something that I love about our work, Kelly, is that that is not what it feels like to work at the BYU Arts Partnership. We don't have living over here and working over here. Everything is that kind of integrated responsive present thing. And as we're doing strategic planning and looking at our past, like Everything that has been done by this arts partnership in 15 years has been responsive to the present moment and not rejecting what's been done or not standing on the shoulders of those who have done work before them, but also teachers need assistance with literacy. So we take the arts and we say, how can we talk about literacy? Teachers need social emotional support in a pandemic. So let's turn these things online. Let's find ways to support resilience for teachers, Native communities. And teachers are saying there's not enough accurate, authentic information. There's confusion. There's misappropriation. And we respond to it. It's the lived experience of our designers, of our educators, of our participants, of the teachers that is informing the action and the choice that we're making about the present moment. I just wanted to note that about this work and echo what you've said. The Native American Curriculum Initiative is one of those places where it doesn't feel fractured. 
but even looking at the present, sometimes we can feel fractured because we can separate it from the past or separate it from future goals. And we can get so discreet. For example, Ben Abbott, I've heard him say that scientists will describe research on water and say, water research is young. We you know, we've only had two or 300 years to really research what we know about water. Talking about the Anthropocene or this contemporary time as the only time that we have presently studied water and what we know about water. But Ben Abbott reminds us, indigenous people have studied, worked with, understood, and been in relationship with water for way longer than we have had a present research or empirical study in the way that we've adopted in this contemporary age, even a Western, you know, philosophy on what knowledge means. We have so much more information if we turn to the experience of Indigenous people. Really well said. And Heather, the teachers who work with us in our programs are often describing how they're healed through what we do and bringing the arts into their life. And we talked to them about integrating their life and creating balance and all of that. And I'm so glad you brought that forward into the conversation because truly, if we're not healing each other as we live together in the planet, if we're not creating systems that sustain us and sustain each other, we're not going to sustain humanity on this planet. And we have made a conscious effort to be present and be responsive and to serve with love and distinction, the people who are in our stewardship. and bringing in their ancient wisdom and who they are is part of the curriculum. And when Ben says, yes, the thousands of years worth of information that we can gather from our indigenous people is so valuable. It's like Louise said, the people who show up to be with us come with their background knowledge, their information, their history. And we have to honor all of it and be present. Let each individual be present with all of it, bringing it together. So uh, healing was, it's like, as I was taking my notes on your opening, Pally, it was like, I put a big box around healing, because I think this idea of healing is really central to the lean we have to take into climate change, that, you know, it's essential that we think of it as healing and healing on it for everybody, you know, healing for individuals, for communities, for places, for cultures, for the land for the water, you know, all of it. So that was really interesting. And then I was remembering what Louise said in her, I think it was her check-in about Margaret Wheatley and the, the care versus the disinterested intelligent universe that, you know, it's like the universe is disinterested, but still intelligent. And yet there's some really interesting tension that might, I hope would be a generative tension between the idea of needing to care toward healing, you know, that's what we need to do. And yet at the same time, realizing that this system or believing that this system that we're in is intelligent, meaning it's kinship, it's reciprocal and whatever, but somehow it's disinterested. I mean, that that is a, a really interesting paradox to me that is worth thinking about. And then The other thing is that I've just been starting the book, uh, The Dawn of Everything, by David Graeber and David 
Wengro. David Graeber was an anthropologist at the London School of Economics, and Wengro is a comparative archaeologist who studied Africa and the Middle East at University College London and is also a visiting professor at NYU sometimes. Anyway, the dawn of everything is a reinterpretation of the historical timeline. So Joanna Macy's three turnings would, maybe they'd still be the three turnings, but the point they're trying to make is there were so many variations in the way human beings have organized their lives and their societies and their living structures and, you know, putting, saying hunter-gatherers were small bands that did this, and then we settled and became agriculture and developed civilization, and then civilization led to this, you know, I mean, it's like, that is such a simplistic story, and we need to move beyond it to see the whole potential of human possibilities, and this first part that I'm reading is about the indigenous critique and it's fascinating to me because I've, I've known that Benjamin Franklin went to the Iroquois Confederacy and, I mean, got ideas about democracy that influenced our Constitution from the Iroquois Confederacy. I've known that for uh, 30 years, maybe. But I did not know that there was this whole thing that's called the indigenous critique and that indigenous people who organized their communities through conversation, which is so interesting that that's what, you know, how we started in chill. It's the thinking of conversation and thinking of everybody having a place, a seat in the conversation and having a voice and it being non-hierarchical. So, you know, they were critical of the Europeans, the French, the English, and the Spanish because they had money, because money led to power, because nobody was free. Everybody was beholden to these powerful monarchs in the Native American critique, they were saying, we are free. We can all sit there and talk to each other and nobody can be compelled to do anything. We don't have prisons. We don't have judges. We don't have that kind of punishment. What we have is conversation and nobody can be compelled to do anything because we don't have that kind of law. And it's like, that's just mind boggling to think of a community that's organized on that. And the thing that was even more mind-boggling for me was that this guy Lahant recorded the conversations with this one indigenous diplomat who was regarded by everybody as this amazing interlocutor. I mean, he this guy could talk his way in and out of anything. And even though the Native people did not valorize individuals, this guy kind of rose in European minds. And he lived in Paris for six years or something like that. And this guy, Lahant, wrote a book about conversations with this fellow. And it was like in the 1600s, in the 17th century. And the book was widely read all across Europe. And then it influenced the Enlightenment philosophers like Locke and Rousseau and all of these people. So all of these ideas that we think of as Enlightenment ideas about equity and equality and about, you know, democracy and about human nature and all of those things that came up in the Enlightenment can be tied directly to these Native American ideas. And yet, again, we eclipsed them. We just, it's like, who knows about that? I'm so glad for this book. Wow. You know, one of the things that Margaret Wheatley is reminding us in this course is that relationships are the building blocks of the universe. 
everything is in relationship in with something else in order to come into being. That is a law of the universe. And it makes me think about the reality for young people and their relationships. What are materialistic, profit-oriented, militaristic society, our technological society, where it leaves young people in terms of relationships. And it makes me think about David Perkins, you know, who talks about that in education, we need to move from about-itis, like learning about things, to being in relationship with things. And it makes me, like as you're talking, Heather, about Native Americans' knowledge about water, it comes from relationship. It comes from observation. It comes from presence. It comes from watching what happens. Over That's the knowledge base. And I think that's also what Gandalf is saying is we need to be here now. And from being here now in relationship with ourselves and each other, then we are so blessed to have the knowledge of experts and historians and records and and all of that, but that it really needs to begin with relationships and yeah, present. And that is so counter to what's, I mean, the stuff that's been going on in Florida around the AP Black history curriculum is just mind boggling to me. I mean, the idea that we need to take information away from students so that they can't read certain books, they can't know about certain things, and at the same time, make sure you know about Black conservatism. You know, it's like, wait, so it's very upsetting to me to see how the structure of public schooling has been co-opted by people who are trying to make the history of America be a history of heroism rather than a history of the story of the unfolding of how people came from another continent, jumped off their continent, jumped onto somebody else's continent, and then interacted with them over a period of time and and then brought people from yet another continent, you know, enslaved them. Anyway, it's like, and somehow we're not supposed to learn about this stuff because, you know, the critique is it makes white children feel ashamed or feel guilty. And it's like, wow, this is what happened. And we need to understand our history. So what we need to do is to teach teachers how to present, allow students to go into information like that without telling them what they're supposed to feel about it, but rather responding to how their discovery of information makes them think and feel. You should share about what we did in Cedar City, if you haven't thought about it yet, because that was direct lived experience of children in the classroom and responsive to that Paiute Indian tribe's needs. Yeah. So when we made our agreement with the Paiute tribe to create their lesson plans, one of the things they requested is we want to see these lesson plans taught in a classroom before we approve them. So we traveled down to Cedar City that at where many of the Paiute children attend school and the superintendent of schools came, the university, their representatives 
came, it was a faculty member there who set this all up for us, one of our partners. And we taught six of our lessons in this school where the Paiute children also attend in this community school. And we probably had 20 to 25 of the leadership of the that Paiute nation come and observe and watch. And they had some feedback and some ideas, but they were so inspired to watch these lesson plans unfold. And many of the children who were Native American had not been taught about their culture because their parents and grandparents came through the boarding school era when you kept secret that you are a Native American. So in their own culture, they don't know when to celebrate their Native American culture and when it's a shameful thing because that's what historical trauma does. So we have some of the Caucasian students not realizing that their friends are Native American. And we have Native American children who are learning about their culture the first time. And we have children raising their hands, being able to contribute what their grandma said, you know, about something in, in the lesson. And it was remarkably healing because it was so relevant to that community. And to have the Paiute people there to give us immediate feedback, you know, one of the our drawings looked like a maraca instead of a Native American. Oh, it wasn't one of our drawings. It was one of their drawings. So it caused a misspeak and they were able to correct that immediately. And that immediate communication just solidified those relationships and really propelled further work with that group and significant healing within that community. Heather, is that what you were referring to? Yeah. And I also love just like the title of one of the lesson plans that we taught in the kindergarten classroom, which is Utah environments through the eyes of the Paiute. And in that lesson plan, the kindergarten students learn about their environment in Southern Utah through the perspective of the Paiute Indian tribe. So they are not only, you know, meeting standards and learning about the environment, but they're honoring the traditional perspective that offers the reciprocal nature and relationship with the earth. I love that because the Paiute children in kindergarten it can feel very authentic for them to have their perspective as the lens on this content in the classroom. And it was a dance lesson and the children loved it. I mean, we did have a couple children crying on the floor, but those were not about the lesson plan. <laughs> those were about the cameras in the room trying to film this event with adults watching. You know, yeah. this all, I'm really in a tension here right now, because these stories are so uplifting to me. And, you know, all that you're talking about, about the collaboration with the lesson planning, and, you know, I'm thinking about our difficulty in this project I'm working with to get access to the Wampanoag, who, with, I think, are rightfully distrustful of us as a lead response. And, you know, so we're moving at the pace of trust, which means we're a year into the project and we still haven't seen any Wampanoag children to redesign their coastlines using environmental wisdom about how to deal with seas. And, you know, I think about my student Tamara, who is a praying Indian, who was a teacher and she ended up in a school in suburban Boston where the teacher was a great art teacher and she didn't even know she was a racist. She didn't even know that she was hurting Tamara so much that Tamara really couldn't stay there. So we moved her to a bilingual school in urban Boston, which we thought would be wonderful. But everybody looked at her and thought she was a Latina. And so she felt eclipsed by that. So we moved her again and it was finally a really good placement. 
but it's like it was so hard for her to be herself anywhere. So I'm just thinking about how hard it all is and how do we take these wonderful practices and all this wisdom and move it from being a little victory garden in southern Utah to being scalable or being systemic or being a thread that's going to be like the mushrooms underneath the ground and bear fruit all over the place. I mean, it's just, it feels like such a big challenge. And I get overwhelmed by the oppression and by the movement that we're going to and by the fact that our teachers who are being inundated with hurricanes and their towns are being burned down are thinking about the care of the people there and not it doesn't go anywhere near a curriculum about climate change as if those two things are separate somehow anyway there I am being Miss Debbie Downer again I think that Indigenous people and certainly Native communities in our area that we have listened to have great wisdom on how to deal with overwhelmingly difficult challenges. We have a partnership with the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone, and they've shared with us about the massacre of all their people with only, you know, 30 to 40 people of their community left but they're still here today. I mean, what lessons can we learn from them to have only 30 to 40 people of your population left, but to continue to exist and be resilient moving forward? As they tell the story of that massacre, and it was the largest massacre of Native American lives in U.S. history. And they go every year and have a commemoration ceremony on the land. And the year of the COVID shutdown, they had purchased the land and owned the land where that massacre happened for the very first time in history. So we were able to go film that ceremony and they tell the story and they drum and pray and you can honor the ancestors and the tragedy that happened. And as one man stood at the end of the ceremony and sang his song, we must all forgive, but we cannot forget the the spirits of our dead are here with us today. And as he sings that song, the healing that happens that feeling of we are still here was just palpable. The resilience, we can survive. And one of the lessons we learned from them is how to survive. The first thing they're going to do with that land now that they own it is they're taking a grant and they are restoring the land to its original ecosystem. And you know this is a $2 million project that they got a grant for to restore that land. And then they will put an interpretive center on that land so that passersby can visit the interpretive center and telling their story demonstrates their resilience and helps people understand the history of the United States in a gentle way. And what we've learned in the BYU Arts Partnership is that the arts can tell hard stories. And yeah, oh, but Callie, it's just, I still end up with this. Yes, 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 that's right. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's the right way. And the climate emergency is so urgent. It's right now. And it's like the Native American wisdom seems like such a useful stance in response to it. But we've got layers and layers and layers and layers to get through. To It's like to get Native American wisdom recognized, to get it present, to get it, you know, get funding to make it visible, to get 
you know, people like the governor of Florida to allow these things to come into curriculum to, and then to tie it to climate change. You know, it's like we've got, these people are invisible and this is no longer invisible, but you know, it's, we're gonna cast it as a lefty socialist, human destructive attitude that's gonna make white kids feel guilty and make us all poor. You know, I mean, it's just, anyway. So Lois, when I have felt that angst and that stress, that is when Margaret Wheatley's work changed my heart. And when I heard her spoke, she talked about, you let the institutions burn down and you turn towards one another and you build an island. And in my work, I can build a community of people who are working together towards those shared values. And then it does elevate other people. As we work with this Native community, we are impacting Native communities across the country as we present in other places. And it does connect. If I look at the whole big picture of things that need, in Margaret Reilly's word, let them burn down, I get lost in the despair. But I can turn to my community and my people and build a world and just hope that the, the like-minded people will resonate with us for whatever's left afterwards. It may be invisible. And it isn't that it's Native American wisdom because our scientists are helping us fall in love with the world. Our researchers are helping us turn to the earth and say, we've got to take care of this. They're giving us the information, but it's how it all weaves together. Those of us in the Native American Curriculum Initiative have been reading a book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. She is a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation and a teaching professor of environmental and forest biology. Braiding Sweetgrass weaves indigenous wisdom from her native life, her scientific knowledge as a scientist, and the teachings of plants. And she weaves them together in ways that are healing and digestible and really inspiring. The book's become a, a New York Times bestseller. And I think that to address Lois's angst, if we will take the indigenous wisdom and the knowledge of our scientists and the knowledge of the earth and weave them together, we can start finding answers together to move forward. Yeah. And I hear you that I'm my own worst enemy here in that I keep rising up to thinking somehow what I do is supposed to save the whole world. And it's like, no, I need to stay present and with my people and speak my truth and, you know, just allow to happen what happens. So yeah, I get it. Thanks everybody for this incredible conversation. Our, our passion certainly rises. And our angst is what keeps us driving and working. And that's how we can contribute. Well, I hate to be the Debbie Downer, Lois. You're not the Debbie Downer because it's time for us to wrap up this beautiful conversation. And thank you, Callie, so much for sharing your really powerful work and wisdom. And yes, the work that you're doing in Utah is powerful. And there is powerful work happening all over this country, and all over the globe. So listeners, we would love to hear from you. We have a blog on our website at chillpodcast.com. So we'd love to be in, continue the conversation, hear your ideas, hear what you're doing. And we look forward to you joining us for our next episode in this series on Is Climate Change Changing Classrooms? The Chill Podcast is produced by the BYU Arts Partnership. Special thanks to James Houston for editing, Tavin Barrowman for the artwork, and Scott Fox for the music. If you like what you've heard, please leave a review. This helps tremendously as we work to bring more people to our chill conversations. You can find the show notes and more about chill at thechillpodcast.com or on social media. 
Our handle is at the chill podcast. And that's chill, C-H-L-L for Callie, Heather, Lois, and Louise. We can't wait to chill with you next time. Bye.